You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real-world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Cassie Herbert. Cassie is a PhD candidate in philosophy at Georgetown University. Her philosophical interest is at the intersection of political philosophy, feminist philosophy, and philosophy of language. Her dissertation is entitled, Exclusionary Speech and Constructions of Community. In this episode, we talk about risky speech, reports versus accusations, why being objective is not always a good thing, and much more. Hello, Cassie, and welcome to the Yummy Podcast. How are you today? I am great, and thank you so much for having me, Maisha. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Cassie, please tell me, how did you get interested in philosophy? See, I've always really had this strong commitment towards social justice. Ever since I was a little kid, I also was really worried about getting it wrong, about getting things wrong in an important way. So I used to have these sort of existential nightmares that I would turn out to be like Hitler, which was quite a worry for an eight-year-old. Because presumably Hitler thought that he was doing something good in the world, and he was not. He was doing something really horrific, right? So he wasn't just wrong. He was wrong in a morally significant way. That, That fear really stayed with me, that we could unintentionally do not just wrong things, but horrible things. And so when I started sort of looking around in the world, and I I grew up from being about eight, um, I I found that philosophy gave me a space to explore these questions of what is right and wrong, and what are some of the things that we can sort of have on our radar when we're worried about unintentional effects of our actions, of what we're doing. How can we try and make sure that the things that we're doing in the world actually are good? So, So that's where my interest in philosophy came from, or from these existential nightmares. Well, thank you so much for being a philosopher. Hey, here's Here's, here's the question I was wondering. Why didn't it bring you to social science? Because you would think that, I mean, in some ways you can say, well, there's a lot of people who unintentionally did something, and that may bring someone to, let's say, uh, social psychology, right, trying to get at the root that causes us or lead us t- to get things wrong, or social, social science, like sociology. Why, why philosophy? Philosophy gave me a space to explore what is right and wrong. So not just why are we making these mistakes, but actually what is it? Um, And that was the question that I found really, really disturbing, that we could be fundamentally incorrect about whether or not we are doing something morally good. And so what is morally good? What is justice? Were questions that really, really stuck with me. And philosophy was the space where I got to explore that. So you've recently developed an account of different kinds of speech acts, accusations, and reports. Can you tell us what are accusations and what are reports and why are they often mistaken for each other? Sure. So as you identified, these are speech acts. We do things with our language. Language is itself an action. And these are two different kinds of actions that we can perform with our language. So reports are one of the things that make up the fabric of our daily interactions. 
right? They're truth claims. They are reporting on things that are going on in the world. So they're declaratives. They're declaring something to be true. But more than that, they're declaratives about something that the speaker has this particular standing to talk about. So something that the speaker has either investigated or experienced. So you can give an, a report about how your morning went. If you say, yeah, I overslept, missed the bus, and it was just an awful day. That's a report on how your day went because it's something that you personally have experienced. Or if a botanist is issuing a report about the growth patterns of trees, they have investigated this. They have personally looked into it. So they have particular standing to issue truth claims about what's going on with those trees. Now, what's interesting about reports is that they're doing two things. One is that they're an invitation to trust. Right? So they're an invitation to trust that the speaker is a trustworthy epistemic agent in the world. And more than that, they call for trust that the speaker, in fact, knows the content of what they're talking about, that they have this particular connection to it, either through investigating or experiencing it. Right? So they're connected in a way that you just don't get when someone say, oh, reads a book on the growth patterns of trees, right? They can give a report on that book, but they can't actually report on the trees themselves yet. On the other hand, we have accusations. So accusations are a way to hold a person to account for their wrongdoing, right? So it's a way of trying to get a person to feel, feel the, the weight of the, the norms that they have violated. It's a deontic move. It's a way, again, to try and hold someone accountable. That's what an accusation is. Now, it's really importantly different about these two kinds of speech acts is they call for a really different sort of response from the audience. So reports, the proper response is to start off believing what the person has said. And then if you find, you know, conflicting evidence, if you find some reason to be a little bit skeptical of what they've said, then you start looking into it. But you start off from this position of default belief. Accusations, on the other hand, you're doing it wrong if you start off from default belief. Accusations call for kind of suspended belief, not necessarily disbelief, but not yet getting on board with what someone has said. And they call for us to find evidence, something to corroborate what the person has said. Often they give us evidence at the same time as someone issues a report. You know, you didn't empty the trash and that was your chore as you're pointing to that overflowing trash can, um, right? So then it's an accusation with the evidence all bundled in right in the same moment. But the point is that in order to believe an accusation properly, you need to have some sort of corroborating evidence. And then if you don't find it, then you don't end up believing it. Whereas on the other hand, reports, start off from this position of default belief, and then you can always reevaluate. So they're really, really different in terms of the sorts of responses that they call for. But what gets tricky is that they can be exactly identical to each other in terms of the words that a person is speaking. Right? So if I say, going again to that overflowing trash can, you didn't empty the trash and it was, it was your chore this week. I might also just be reporting on this was your chore. You didn't do it. I'm not trying to hold you to account. I'm just trying to alert you to this. So there are some times when it gets really, really unclear what it is that a person is doing with their speech. If they say, I was sexually assaulted, they might in fact be trying to issue a report. They might simply be calling for belief in what they said. Or they might in fact be issuing an accusation. Right? They might be trying to hold the person accountable for what it is that they did.
And so there are really significant effects from how we take up what sort of action a person is doing with their words here. How are we able to decipher the latter? Someone is making an utterance about being sexually assaulted. How do we figure out if it is a report or an accusation? I think this is genuinely tricky, and I'm not sure that I have a hard and fast rule that we can follow here. So some of the things that we can do is we can try and figure out from context and from the speaker themselves what it is that they're trying to do. So if we ask them in the right context, properly supportive, what do you want to have happen? Oftentimes someone will tell us through that answer what it is that they're looking for. Are they looking for belief? Right? And that's huge, especially when a person is reporting on serious injustice that was done to them. Right? Especially because those things are so often glossed over, so often disbelieved. Just looking for belief often is, in and of itself, incredibly significant. Other times, someone might say, no, I want them held to account for what they did. They have to pay or they have to learn that this isn't okay. And then we can get a cue that, okay, maybe this is what's going on here is an accusation. Often though, these things get really, really blurred together. And so I think it often is difficult to separate out what it is that a speaker is trying to do. So tell us now, what is risky speech? Can you provide some examples of it? Sure. So risky speech is, as it sounds like, speech that is risky to the speaker. So I'm drawing on Christy Dotson's notion of risky speech here. And she thinks of risky speech as being speech that is somehow unintelligible, so incomprehensible to the audience. And in a way that brings risks to the speaker, and especially risks about whether or not the speaker is going to be properly recognized as a knower. So if someone says something that's just utterly sort of mind-blowing or uncomprehensible to an audience, they often risk having the audience think that they're the ones who are incompetent. The speaker is the one who's incompetent. And so I'm thinking about risky speech in this way, although also a little bit broadly. So I'm also interested in, especially want to be attentive to, the sorts of risks that speech can bring on beyond just epistemic risks, but also physical and social risks. So things like being ostracized, things like being opened up to physical attack. And especially this is the case for speech that pushes against the status quo. So speech that challenges our established systems of power. And especially the examples that I have in mind are things like accounts of racism, accounts of sexism, reporting on or issuing speech about experiencing sexual violence. So calling attention to and asking to hold people to account for, or even just belief in, actions that violate our established systems of power. So why on your view should risky speech be seen as a report and not just as an accusation? One of the things I'm worried is that we have this default tendency to take risky speech always as an accusation. And so sometimes I, I do want to acknowledge, sometimes ris risky speech is in fact an accusation, and that is how it should be taken up. But not always. That's not always what a speaker is trying to do. And so I worry a lot that we're blocking off this avenue of speech, this avenue of action to folks who are issuing risky speech. But more than that, I have this worry that by taking up risky speech sort of always or as by default as an accusation, that this serves as a really subtle way of delegitimizing this speech. Hmm. So this kind of response is what I call the objective response. So the objective response is when we say, hold on, slow down, we have to be objective, we have to be careful, we have to really treat this seriously, so where is your evidence? 
how do you know that that storekeeper was racist? How do you know this really was sexual assault? How do we know that's what happened? And so the worry here is that this kind of response looks a whole lot like taking risky speech very seriously. It specifically is calling for more evidence. But in calling for more evidence, one of the things that it does is it places that speech in a position of distrust. It's failing to automatically believe it. Right? So it's sort of paradigmatically not taking it as a report and instead is treating it as an accusation whether or not the speaker was trying to do that. So my worry is that when we always treat risky speech as an accusation, it puts in a position where the speaker has to find evidence in order to be believed about things often from their own experiences. So it calls into question whether or not the speaker is trustworthy about their own lived experiences, about their life. And that even while on the surface, it looks like taking this seriously, it looks like being responsible, epistemic agents. Instead, this is just yet another way of delegitimizing risky speech. Let's suppose that I have good intentions, right? And I hear someone utter a risky speech and I believe them. However, let's just say that I also take the utterance to be a combination of a report and an accusation. Or it could be the case that I take it to be a report, but in some ways I want to use this speech as evidence for others, <laughs> right? To evidence to prove that this phenomenon exists. Or I want to take it to the next level. Can I do that? I think yes. I think that this is sort of paradigmatically what ought to happen, that a speaker issues a report and that their report in and of itself counts as reason to believe that this thing has happened. Well, then we can start to use their speech as evidence to support the, an accusation down the road. And does that sort of account for what you're thinking about? Mm -hmm. So ways in which we start to, again, treat the speaker as a trustworthy agent in the world as someone who knows what it is that they are experiencing. And then we can start to treat their speech as something that in and of itself counts as reason to believe when we move on to an accusation. I do wanna flag that we probably ought to be a little bit careful with, with that second step of moving on to holding folks to account if it's not what the speaker wants, so that especially matters. Okay. When we're thinking about things like sexual violence, whether or not they want to take that next step, mm -hmm. well, it should be up to the speaker themselves. But generally speaking, especially when worried about, say, big public instances of wrongdoing, treating the speaker's words as sufficient reason to believe that something has happened, or as even a reason to believe, that at least gets us somewhere much farther than we do than when we treat it as an accusation alone. What would you say to people, and this may be part of the objective response, but what would you say to people who, after hearing this, would say, well, it seems like reports conflict with the mantra or the saying that a person is innocent until proven guilty. Does it matter that a report will conflict with this mantra? So I want to be clear that what I'm interested in here, and I should have said this at the beginning, so I apologize, is I'm interested in what we do outside of a courtroom. Now, now so mind you, mind you, we do now. Now, if you go to any Facebook feed, mm -hmm. <laughs> right, yes. and where and where people have reported instances, that seems to be something that repeatedly happens. It's part of our our, our our everyday language, right? It's kind of like oh, someone makes makes a report, and we don't even know if they're accusing the person, but we take it as such. And so, I'm wondering in what way, because the person said, well, in the report, you're centering 
Now, you're saying that we ought to believe the person who's making the report, but some people may say, well, what about the person that they're reporting on? Doesn't doesn't we have an obligation towards that individual? So so what would you say in, in regards to that? Good. So I think it gets genuinely complicated. And so I don't have good, easy answers to this. I don't want to say that we should always, over, no matter what, never, ever, ever disbelieve a person's report. I think that's far too strong, especially given that we know that there are some pretty horrific ways. I think, for example, white women issuing reports against black men about sexual violence. That's a place where believing these reports goes wrong in ways that are really serious, right? That's a place, as far as I can tell, it's one of the only times when people default to believing that sexual violence has happened. And often women haven't been telling the truth. And so what to do about this? I'm not sure. I think a first step that we can make is to carve out this distinction between reports and accusations, to figure it out what it is that the speaker is trying to do and how we're taking it up. And that might give us some clues about how to go about sorting this out. So if we take a speaker's report as reason to believe that something has happened, well, then we also ought to take the person they're, they're talking about, the accused, even if they're not issuing an accusation. Um, we ought to believe we have reason to believe them as well if they say, no, I didn't do that. But the difference here is that this sets it up as a position between equals. One says, yes, they did that. The other says, no, I didn't. Um, and okay, so we have reasons to believe both of them, which is really different from innocent until proven guilty, where the speaker has to automatically find a whole bunch of evidence in order to sort of get on the table as being a person who could be believed. Right? And that matters, again, especially when they're pushing back against the status quo, when they're pushing back against entrenched systems of power. And so that's the other thing that I think we can start to take into consideration, is what is the social standing of the person who is issuing this speech? What are they trying to bring about? And what is our history in terms of taking up this speech? If there's a whole history of disbelieving it or disregarding it, well, then that might give us more reason to be very careful and how we go about responding to it. That might give us more reason to err on the side of taking it as a report, to err on the side of believing the person. That doesn't always mean, again, that they're telling the truth, but it means that we should be more careful with our responses. Do we have a, an epistemic reason to trust right after the report is made, or is it more of a moral reason, or is it both, and how so? I think it is all of the above, right? So I think of reports as being invitations to trust. Right? So drawing off of Moran's work and thinking about the ways in which when someone puts information out there, it's a moral move, right? It's calling for a particular kind of second personal relationship. And when we fail to take that up, that in and of itself is morally significant. It sends a message of you aren't the sort of person that I can rely on. We have all kinds of good, good reasons to rely on um, epistemic testimony of others, um, that this is something that they believe, therefore we should believe it too. Again, that doesn't mean do it without ever looking for, for whether or not it's true. But again, it seems like this is something that we already incorporate into our daily practices. And so starting to be more aware of when we are doing this, when we're relying on this, and when we default to believing a person versus not, seems to have really important moral uh, effects. Do you think the response to risky speech, as you as you highlight here, are one of the main reasons why people are hesitant about engaging in the in the in the process? So I'm thinking that, I mean, for lots of people, um, they say that uh, victims are less prone to report assault 
because of a fear of not not being believed. And what you're suggesting is it's not just mere of not being believed, but the extra burden of, mm-hmm. of having to prove it. Would you say that that has a lot to do with not reporting it? I know you're saying that that's one of yeah. the consequences, but do you think that has an influence on hesitance yeah. with reporting? I think that often is one of the things that blocks people from coming forward, especially when we're talking about things that are, in a sense, intangible. How do you prove it was really non-consensual? How do you prove that they were really motivated by um, racism or sexism, ableism, homophobia? Right? How do you prove these things is difficult, right? It's not an easy thing to do. And so when a person is faced with the option of either talk about, recount their experiences, and know that they're going to be placed with this position of having to defend, having to take on this extra burden of proof, or just staying quiet. Well, it seems like it's a whole lot easier just not to get into it, especially when our what counts as proof is often extraordinarily high. And so this is, again, forcing someone to take on this extra burden just for talking about what's going on in their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about people who may take it as an accusation, and I'm thinking about kind of the moral psychology of that person, mm-hmm. being that I work in moral psychology. And I, I'm thinking if they are quick to view it as an accusation as, a, as opposed to a report, because in some ways they feel like it's an accusation on them, even mm. if they're not the offender in some sense, that if taking the person as, you know, uttering a truth, a truth, is some indication on them, and so they feel that they have to, oh, prove it. So, for example, uh, a friend may report that they're a victim of racism. Well, to accept or to trust what they say is to suggest that, hey, racism exists, and as a white person, I may have been complicit in racism, and so I can switchly move it from a report to an accusation as a way to defend my own racist, whether that's implicitly or explicit belief. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how much of it is a defense mechanism, because I can imagine that when the person report, of course, it's not the offender that they're reporting to, right? It's it's people in the community, right? So I, I wonder if the move to look at it as a accusation as opposed to report has also a lot to do with, with us and how <laughs> report reflects on a reality that we may be complicit in. That is a lovely example. Uh, and I think you're exactly right, that often it's this sort of not just masking that the speak that the audience is trying to sort of subtly dis disbelieve the speaker but also masking their own complicity and whatever is going on so if you say exactly um if you say yes that move was racist that implies that racism exists that implies that we might be implicated in it that white people have this greater obligation to take up and sort of resist or fight back against it it also means that say if that white person was in the store when that shopkeeper was being racist, then it might mean that, oh, they missed something really important in the world, right? So it's not just that, oh, they're implicated in this system of racism, but also they aren't aren't picking up on information that they might sort of have hoped that they would be picking up on. They're not so woke. I think that yeah. <laughs> right? Like shit. <laughs> and so one of one of the things I think happens often with these uh, this default to taking it as an accusation is that then you get to have it both ways. You get to have this veneer of taking it seriously while still sort of protecting yourself, right? Mm-hmm. While still sort of maintaining the boundaries of our entrenched systems of power, right? You don't actually have to let in anything while you still have this veneer of being 
you know, doing all of the right moves, taking it seriously, asking for evidence, right? Mm -hmm. You weren't just ignoring what the person is saying. Instead, you're actually responding to them. Ooh, how do you know this? What proof do you have? Mm -hmm. It really looks like taking it seriously. It looks like being woke in a way, right? But it, again, gets to maintain all of these entrenched systems of power. It doesn't actually require reevaluating anything or reevaluating our role in things. While at the same time, putting on this greatly increased burden on the person who's speaking up. So, so give us some normativity. What are some ways that we can resist defaulting to the objective response? So some things that we can do, and I'm thinking especially of the sorts of responses that we see on social media, because this is a place where this plays out all the time, right, is to hold off on those, well, what's your proof statements? So oftentimes people take to social media just to get trust that this is a thing that happened. Uh, oftentimes it's a move of this is something that exists this is a thing that happened this is something that we should be attending to sometimes it takes the additional move of and we need to hold someone to account for it but overwhelmingly that's not that doesn't quite end up happening in part because of these these responses of, well, where's your proof? So we can slow down with the where's your proof responses. If it is the case that someone issues statements of, and we need to hold someone to account, then we can switch over into taking it as an accusation. We can oh, say, okay, where's the proof? Let's amass it. Let's see if it's there. What can we do to hold someone to account? How can we sort of, again, hold people to these norms that they have violated? But again, slowing down and figuring out what a person is doing, especially given that we live in a world that so systematically denies the reality of these forms of oppression. And so if someone is specifically talking about something horrific that they've experienced, we can start off with saying, okay, by default, I'm going to believe you that this happened. Uh, if we find conflicting evidence, then we might reevaluate that default belief. But slowing down and, and resisting the automatic move to asking for proof is, I think, an amazing first step. So Cassie, you went to a rather unorthodox high school. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about why it was so unorthodox and what is one thing you think educational institutions should borrow from it and why? Oh gosh, <laughs> I went to a very unorthodox high school where we both didn't have grades in terms of ABC, nor did we have, nor were we in grades in terms of eighth, ninth, and tenth grade. So you sort of moved at your own pace. You developed these what were called essential skills, so things like reading, writing, oral presentations. And this wasn't uh, homeschooling, right? You went to an actual not, building. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, it was it was it was an atypical school. I will definitely acknowledge that. Uh, but one of the things that was so great about it was that it really encourage creativity. Right? So people, the whole point of it was thinking outside the box. I'm not even sure there was a box <laughs> anywhere in the picture of this school. And so instead it was all about thinking about what were you interested in? How could you develop projects sort of cultivating these interests? Um, really, really rigorous education in terms of you needed to know the ideas in order to do these more creative projects with them. But also again, encouraging this kind of creativity and playfulness. And so I think that sense of playfulness is something that uh, educational systems ought to be emphasizing a little bit more, making learning fun and showing how this has bearing on our daily lives. That's something that I took away and I was really appreciative of to get that. So you live in D.C. now, but prior to moving to D.C., you lived in three states with the letter M, Massachusetts, <laughs> Maine, and Montana. Which state, I'm not going to say is the best state, but which state if you can only, we're going to talk about letter grades. If you can only give one state the letter A, which one would it be? Oh, dear. Um, I think Massachusetts feels like 
the most comfortable state to me. <laughs> uh, it's the one where where the, I really uh, appreciate a lot of the politic, the political work that goes on in this state. Uh, and I, you know, I've got friends and family. I know you are there right now, yes. which certainly bumps up the letter grade <laughs> for that state. Um, Good answer. <laughs> uh, you know, Maine and Montana also just have these breathtakingly beautiful natural landscapes. And so I think there's also value, you know, as we're working on these things about oppression and injustice and just the horrors of daily life, I think it's, it's nice to remember that there's some beauty in the world as well. Okay. You are a fan of BBC TV shows. So I want you to imagine that Netflix could only have one BBC showing, right? Which show would you prefer to binge on on Netflix <laughs> if it was the only BBC TV show? Oh, no. Um, I'm not I think this is through BBC, but I think it's a joint project with an Australian TV company. Um, I re this is embarrassing. I really like Miss Fisher's Murder Mystery. Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> which is, it's very sexy. So this would be like the show uh, that you would want to binge on out of all BBC TV shows? Like Luther just wouldn't do for you? Oh, that's BBC? Yes. Oh, I'm out of the loop. So honestly, the show I've been watching the most recently is a weird show from the 90s called The Pretender, which makes no sense whatsoever. So that's that's currently my binge-watching show. Oh my goodness. But I, I need to get up today. I need to get up to speed. I need to watch some Luther. Well, Cassie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for teaching me about Risky Speech and how to respond to it. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. This has been so lovely getting to chat with you. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.